let's bow in prayer and just ask God to bless his word this morning. Father, we come before you today and we just thank you for your word. We thank you for the power that it has to change our lives, to, to make us new. And we pray, Lord, that as we listen to your word today, that you would teach us new things. And Lord, that we would uh, be able to take in the challenges of your word, to be faithful to you, to understand the, the things that we need to do during this Christmas time uh, for your honor. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, are you ready for Christmas? Some of you are like, yeah, yeah, I can't wait for Christmas. Others are like, no, I'm not ready. No, not at all. I have a lot of shopping to do. I got to buy a tree. I got to wrap presents. Oh, and I got all those things I got to go to. They're like, oh, you know, for work and church and, and my care group, my connect group and all these things, all these events I got to go to. And, and uh, oh, and I got to do these shopping for, for these people. Like, they have everything. I don't know what to get them. Uh, and so for some people, when you say, are you ready for Christmas? It's like stress. <laughs> they just go into panic attack. No, I'm not ready for Christmas. Um, there's a rather, rather poignant uh, story, Christmas story, about a, a little girl who were, was watching her mother and father get ready for Christmas. And her mother and father just seemed to be busy putting up the lights, uh, trimming the tree, getting gifts. Dad was rushing around with boxes and wrapping. And mom was busy cooking stuff. And every once in a while, they, they would say, Hey, dear, get, get out of the way. Daddy needs to go here. Or mommy needs, Mommy's busy. Can you go to, go to your room and play? And all this kind of thing. Like, and she was just feeling like she was just getting shoved around. And she was starting to really, you know, like, oh, this Christmas thing is terrible. And uh, so finally, one night in December, she got down on her knees beside her bed uh, bedtime, and she prayed this. Our Father, who art in heaven, hell, um, please forgive our Christmases as we forgive those who Christmas against us. <laughs> so, uh, seems like Ebenezer Scrooge isn't the only one with a bah humbug attitude. <laughs> Uh, you ever feel overwhelmed by all of the bother of Christmas? Feel like there's a whole lot of negativity going on? Like there's just a whole lot of... It's almost like Christmas is a curse and we got to endure it uh, sometimes for some people. Um, and it seems sometimes just getting the Christmas spirit is kind of tough. Well, you know what? If you're feeling that way, if you're feeling like, ah, oh, it's gloomy, it's dark, why does Christmas have to be four days after the shortest day of the year? You know, like, it's dark all the time. Like, and it starts to get to you, you know? Um, well, you might be surprised that actually you'd be in good company uh, with the scriptural writers if you thought Christmas was kind of a dark, gloomy time. Uh, you know, I, I've been thinking, what, what should I do for a Christmas series? And I decided, oh, I'm going to do the Christmas series on Christmas according to Isaiah. I just thought this would be a great theme to do the Christmas story on. And uh, I had no idea that the Christmas according to Isaiah was going to be so gloomy. So I, I thought, I would, you know, Christmas on... Uh, 
according to Isaiah, this would be like a great topic, you know, like a great way to, to get us into this Christmas spirit. I mean, there's this amazing God with us virgin birth announcement, right, in Isaiah chapter 7. And then in Isaiah chapter 9, there's this amazing, you know, uh, um, message about who he's going to, what he's going to be like and how great it's going to be. Uh, and then later on in Isaiah, you have the suffering servant, just this incredible picture uh, of, of really Jesus Christ. Uh, even though, you know, for Isaiah, he was born seven, or he lived 700 years before there ever was a Christmas. But interestingly enough, he talks about Christmas a lot. In fact, I think it's the whole theme of his entire book. Um, and so... Um, Here's one of the verses I just mentioned. The virgin will conceive, give birth to a son, and we'll call him Emmanuel. Now, isn't that like an amazing passage? I could preach for weeks on that alone. Uh, and then the next verse, chapter 9, you know, For unto us a child is born, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, the Everlasting God, the Mighty God, Everlasting Father, sorry, Prince of Peace. And the greatness of his uh, government and peace, there will be no end. I mean, wow, that preaches, you know. <laughs> I'm like, yes, I'm going to definitely preach on this. And it's going to be so positive and so encouraging. Um, and while these these passages are dripping with hope and confidence, and, and you, you know, you start thinking in your mind, and this is what, what I did, I started thinking in my mind, well, there's going to be this beautiful picture that Isaiah is painting of this virgin, you know, having a child and giving birth to the long-awaited Messiah. And it's going to be, his name's going to be Emmanuel, God with us. This is a beautiful picture. And angels celebrating, kings bowing down in worship, bringing gifts of gold, frankincense and myrrh, and, and, and peace that lasts forever and ever, uh, and ever and ever, amen. And peace on earth and goodwill towards men. This is going to be fantastic. Christmas according to Isaiah. It's going to be wonderful. Well, I started studying early this week. Reading about reading Isaiah. And I was like, hmm. This is kind of gloomy. This is kind of dark. This is... This isn't exactly what I imagined. In fact, I started realizing as I was doing this, I'm like, oh, I've only left three Sundays till Christmas. There's enough for like a year of preaching here. What in the world am I thinking? And I realized I've bitten off way more than I can chew. There's no way I can get through all this stuff. Uh, the picture I had been painting in my head was nothing like what was written down in, in Isaiah itself. It was completely the opposite, actually. I realized that my, what my blunder was. You see, I had been talking about this verse and a half and the other half a verse, two verses. And I thought that was the paint, painting that he was painting, these two verses. But no, the entire book of Isaiah is the picture. And I'm telling you, it is not these two verses, not in the least. These two verses shine like little bright lights out of this gloomy darkness. But the rest of the picture that he's painting for Christmas is dark. Um, so instead of cherubs singing sweetly over the little Lord Jesus as he sleep in the hay, 
we're more like reminded of, you know, soldiers running through the streets, murdering uh, infants and, and parents tucking in their, their child under their arms and fleeing to Egypt in the middle of the night. That's more the, the theme of Isaiah. So, uh, sorry if you've come here to be encouraged. You might be a little, like, ooh, discouraged today. But I think you'll enjoy it. I think you'll, you'll see some cool things that maybe you weren't expecting. Um, you see, the thing... Uh, so, so basically, I'm going to paint you a picture from Isaiah actually literally paint you a picture from Isaiah. Um, the thing about, about prophecy is, prophecy is God sharing spiritual truths with a prophet. And, and then, and, but God often uses the things and the symbols that are around the prophet. And God often use, is the, uses the actual things that are going on in the prophet's life as part of the message to the people of, of God. And so that's exactly what's happening in Isaiah. His family actually becomes prophetic in, in their names, actually. His whole life becomes prophetic. And what he sees about the future is really right there in front of him. Just like three or four years into the future, he's got these prophecies, and, and sometimes 10 or 15, 65, and even 100 years into the future, he's got this amazing message. And when you look through history, it's like, it's almost like he's written, writing history, and it comes true after he's written it down. And in fact, so much so that in the modern world where people think miracles don't exist, they've tried to make it out that somebody wrote all this stuff into Isaiah afterwards. But when you really, when people really study the book of Isaiah, they realize that this is impossible because the, the uh, style of writing all the way through the book is, is the same. And it's, it's a very different style of writing. It's very unique. It's very unusual. Uh, and it, it, uh, it kind of bounces around a lot. And you're going to see that this morning as we talk about chapter 7 and 8. So, um, so th- this is what's happening with these, these prophecies. They're, they're sort of encapsulated in the time that the prophet is in. And yet, there's this amazing strand that goes through the prophecies that is fulfilled even century centuries later seven centuries later actually um so the stage we're going to look at chapter seven of course the first first uh verse that we talked about uh for unto us a child or no i'm sorry for <laughs> the vir- the virgin shall be with child and uh will conceive and bear a child and his name will be emmanuel that's where we're going to start but we have to sort of you can't just look at this chapter in a vacuum it doesn't work very well. This chapter is very complicated. It took me like a long time to figure out what was going on in this chapter. I was just confused at first. Uh, so you have to realize that this builds up from the beginning of the book. So there, these are the dark days of Israel's decline. Israel has been a huge nation, been, had many, many kings at this point, and it's, it's the, the pronouncement of judgment of God has been on the nation for a while now and uh, particularly on the northern tribes of Israel, uh, God has been furious with them because they've just rejected his ways. They're not following his ways at all. And so to the casual observer, though, if you looked at these nations, the nation of Israel and the nation of Judah, 
they look pretty good, pretty strong. Uh, in fact, economically, they were very well off. They had uh, money to spare. The people were wearing gold bracelets and jewelry and anklets and all kinds of neat stuff, long flowing silk robes. You can read about it in chapters 1 through 5, uh, all of the wealth that was there. The Militarily, they were doing very well. They had a, a nice, well-equipped army. They could defend themselves. They had huge walls around Jerusalem. There was a well-defended capital. And there were no major wars going on at this time. And so they were feeling secure from their enemies. So it all looked pretty good. But then Isaiah starts prophesying to them. He starts pointing out things. And so uh, I have this uh, some paint that I'm going to paint here. You'll find out what amazing artistic skills I have today. Um, so, um, one of the things that Isaiah prophesies about in the beginning chapters of the book is that actually things are not that well. There are families where the children are just rebellious against their parents. So, you know, to me that just sounds like a big dark block on the canvas here. Okay, it's not canvas, paper. Uh, so, so contempt for authority just became the rule of the day. Uh, disrespecting elderly people—that was another dark blot on on this society. Uh, that was happening all over the place. Uh, one of the things that Isaiah talks about a lot was the haughtiness of the the women. The women would walk down the street with their noses in the air, and you know, just big black blot on their respectability. And and they would they would make fun of. And poke fun of the poor people. Oh, you're not like me. And it's just becoming a kind of a big blot. Um, morality was actually openly ridiculed. People mocked people for trying to be faithful to their spouses. They mocked people for uh, another big black X, I guess. I don't know. Um, how do you like my painting so far? It's a little dark, I know. Uh, and then Sodom and Gomorrah is mentioned two times in these chapters. And, they, and they're just saying, you know, like, immorality is rampant like Sodom and Gomorrah. So likely they're referring to homosexuality being done. And so there's another big blot on, on their, their, their society. One of the things that they were doing is they were calling evil things good and good things evil. I don't know if that sounds familiar to me, but yeah. It kind of sounds a lot like today. But anyways, another big dark blot on, on their, the, the painting that Isaiah's painting. There was corruption in the highest courts of the land. Big blot there. God hates that corruption and warned about it in the Old Testament. Unrighteousness was being exalted as the best thing around. And, and then there was substance abuse. I mean, there was drunkenness. There's a whole, like, a whole chunk in, in chapter 5 about, you know, drinking and partying and, and being drunk all the time. Uh, and then there was worship. Now, you might say, well, worship's a good thing, isn't it? They were worshiping God. Yeah, they were actually worshiping God. But God said, would you please stop the worship? And you might go like, why is God saying that? Well, because they were worshiping without their heart. They were just doing a bunch of rituals just to follow through. And they were just like, okay, we're just going to do this just to, you know, to look good in society. But they actually didn't mean anything by it. And, and so God was saying, would you stop 
sacrificing animals to me. I can't stand your new moon feast. I can't stand what you're doing in in all society. Um, God actually says, stop all this meaningless stuff. It makes me sick. And so there's this quiet, well, growing wickedness. It was just getting darker and darker all the time and just filling up everything with darkness. there was unchecked crime. Crime was just getting horrible. People were killing each other. People were, you know, stabbing each other in the back. And it was just getting bleaker and bleaker and bleaker. Pagan religions were becoming more and more accepted. And godliness was rampant. And so, the Christmas, according to Isaiah, <laughs> well, not looking that great. It was pretty dark and gloomy. Now, the, the guys in the booth are back there saying, putting bets on me whether I'll knock this paint over, so I think I'll move it. Okay, they weren't actually, but <laughs> they did talk to me about it. <laughs> uh, and so when you look at this lead-up to chapter 7, it's just constant woe and doom. So not only is this society looking bleak and dark like this, but then I need another paintbrush Anyways, it's dark enough. Then Isaiah starts saying, okay, because of this, God is going to come and he's going to judge you. He's going to deport the whole nation. There's going to be death and destruction. Your, your young men are going to be killed on the battlefield. And your, your women and children are all going to be taken off into captivity and serve as slaves to a foreign nation. It's going to be horrible. And, and he just describes it in just this horror detail. And you're like, ugh. This sounds awful. You see, Isaiah started his ministry in about 740 B.C. And he went, went till about 700 B.C. So you actually count backwards in the Old Testament for dates. So anyways, the, the northern tribe of Israel is deported in 720. So 20 years after uh, he starts his ministry this whole disaster comes on the northern tribes of Israel. And then it's it's another hundred years after that before the second whole pile of prophecies come true, uh, referring to the Babylonian captivity of Judah. See, see Isaiah was primarily a, a, a prophet to Judah, not to northern Israel. And so most of his prophecies were done uh, to the king of uh, Israel. And at this time... Uh, well, we're going to get that. Uh, so it's very bleak. And you know it's going to get worse because Assyria is going to deport northern Israel. Um, so in chapter 6, after Isaiah has been talking all about this horrible situation in the land and he's been doing some prophesying already, in chapter 6, uh, he sees this vision of heaven and God says, Hey, who's going to tell the people about my will? And Isaiah goes, hey, here am I, you know, send me. And, uh, and God says, okay, I'll send you. But guess what? When you go, they're not going to listen to you. They're not going to listen to a word you say. And so God warns Isaiah that the people are not going to listen to him. So we get to chapter 7. So that's sort of the background, this bleak, dark picture that Isaiah has painted so far. And we get to chapter 7. And chapter 7 opens up with sort of a reference to the time period. It says that it was during Isaiah, uh, I'm sorry, during, uh, what's his name? 
uh, Ahaz, king of Judah's reign. Uh, that's sort of the time frame. And he says, um, and, and so Ahaz is from the royal line of David. He's been sitting, the, there's been sons of David, as prophesied, been sitting on the throne of Judah since David's time. And so there's been, I don't know, about 10, 15 uh, kings. And they've grown successively, successively worse in their behavior. Um, and so being a son of David doesn't make him a godly king. It just makes him part of the lineage. And in fact, he wasn't very godly at all. Um, so next we have a couple, we're introduced to a couple other kings. The King Rezin of Aram. Now, Aram is, is above Israel. It's to the north. And King, Ar- King uh, Rezin of Aram, he decides he's going to s- attack Israel. So uh, you can see where, where that... I thought there was a... Yeah, there we go. Thank you. So Aram's right up here. And, and Israel's here and Judah's down here. So the king of Aram decides he's going to attack Jerusalem. He's going to try to take Jerusalem. Well, guess what? The king of uh, Israel supposed to be, you know, close relatives of Judah, decides to join him. So Pekah, son of Ramallah, joins King Rizim to attack Jerusalem. And uh, so talk about betrayal. I mean, God's people coming to attack God's people. It was, I mean, it, it had happened a few times in the history before this, but here it is happening again. So in verse 2, when the house of David hears about this alliance, suddenly they're not feeling so secure about their, their defenses. I mean, they, they felt like they could fend off king of Aram. They felt like they could fend off the king of Israel. But both of them together? Oh, that's terrifying. And it says in verse 2, So the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken, as the trees of the shaken are for, are. are of the forest are shaken by the wind. I mean, this guy is literally shaking in his boots. He's terrified that these two nations are going to wipe out his nation of, of Judah. All this tranquility and opulence, it's all in jeopardy. And the king's freaking out. So God sends Isaiah to go and talk to the king. And so, um, and, and Isaiah, I guess, is about to go, and God says, oh yeah, don't forget to take along your son. Uh, your son's name, Sherab Jeshub. Now, Sherab Jeshub means remnant will return. And so, uh, remnant will, will return, and Isaiah go off to meet King Ahaz. And, uh, and at that point, King the, um, Isaiah says the first keep calm message ever recorded in history. You know, we've got this keep calm, carry on. Well, here it is, found right in Isaiah. Okay, You thought it was from the Second World War? No, this is from earlier on. Well, it's not quite exactly keep calm, carry on. It's more like, be careful, keep calm, and don't be afraid. And do not lose hope or, or lose heart. So there's this message. The very first message from Isaiah to the king is kind of like cutting through the darkness into a light. And there's a bit of light shining through the darkness. Okay, turn off those big lights. We're just not getting the image here, I don't think. There we go. It's a little wet, too. Can you see light sticking through? There's a little tiny... Oh, no, I cut the hole in the wrong place, didn't I? (laughs) And my light's not... 
This idea worked really good in my head late last night. I'm not sure about right now. Anyways, there's a little hole, and it's cut in the darkness. And Isaiah says, there is going to be uh, some hope for you. Don't stay strong. Keep calm. Uh, have hope. And, and the, the king is still shaking there, and, and uh, um, the remnant will return is still standing there. And Isaiah says, do not lose heart because of these two smoldering stubs of firewood. What two smoldering? Well, these two kings that are coming to attack. Because the fierce anger of Rezim of Aram and the son of Ramela, uh, don't worry about them. Aram, Ephraim, and Ramela's son have plotted your ruin, saying, let us invade Judah, let us tear it apart and divide it among ourselves, and let us make the son of Tabal king over it. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. It will not take place. There's another little hole cut in the darkness. It's not going to happen. This, this, these two kings that you're afraid of, they're, they're not going to come into... Why do I keep cutting this in the wrong place? <laughs> Let's cut it up here. There'll be some light coming through. There we go. Can you see some light coming through? hope so. It will not happen. So this, this dark, gloomy picture that Isaiah's painted, suddenly it's got these bits of light coming through. So, no, that's not going to happen. These kings that, that, that making you shake in your boots, they're not coming. Um, for the head of Aram is Damascus, he said. The head of Damascus is only resin. In other words, there's only this guy. He's just a king. He's just resin. I mean, who's he? And then Isaiah says, within 65 years, Ephraim, now Ephraim refers to the northern tribe of, of Israel, okay? And within 65 years, Ephraim will not even be considered a people, uh, too scattered. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is only Ramallah's son. He's just a human head. And what Isaiah is, is, in the, is kind of backhandedly saying is, you know, you have the Lord God as your king. He's the leader of Judah. Israel is just, you know, he's just Ramallah's son. And Aram, who's he? You know, it's just, just resin. And then he says this to the king. He says, if you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. And I believe this is a great message for us today. As we face Christmas, you know, there's a lot of negativity in our world. You know, uh, I, I heard that the uh, the Parliament just passed this rule banning uh, conversion therapy, and uh, you know, and I'm not opposed to banning conversion therapy necessarily. What I'm con- opposed to is the way they describe in the legislature what conversion therapy is. Basically, if I, as a pastor, try to encourage a young person not to be uh, transgender, then I can go to jail. That's the way it's defined, because it says, basically, that it's, it's uh, punishable, it, it, it's, a, uh, it's a crime to do that. And I'm like, this is, this is crazy. Uh, I, it's actually a crime to encourage a person to accept their birth gender, <laughs> which... You know, self-acceptance, I think, is pretty much... Uh, anyways, I don't want to go into it. But what, I, what I'm just saying is that darkness is descending. Uh, in fact, they want to take away all of the um, uh, religious uh, status 
or the charitable donation status of all charities who believe that abortion is wrong. They just want to take away that. And so these things are coming. They, it's, it's dark times. I know that our country uh, is a lot like what, what Isaiah was describing. I mean, good is talked about as evil. Evil is talked about as good. Um, you know, evangelicals are considered evil people these days for what we believe. We're just considered that, and, and that's a, it's a reality. Uh, a lot of the stuff that was going on in Isaiah's time is going on today. And so when, when uh, Isaiah says to the king, if you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all, I think he's saying that to us too. I think we need to be in this place where we're seeing the light of prophecy that we, we, we are on the other side of the prophecies of Isaiah. And even though there's darkness crowding around the church, we need to recognize that we stand in faith. We stand in faith in spite of the darkness that's all around him. And so Isaiah's challenge him to stand in faith. Be careful, he says. Keep calm. You know, there's this carefulness. He's basically saying, you know, you can go two ways. You can just fall into this idea that, you know, you're nothing and God's not important and, and you're going to fall. But, or you can stand up on your faith. You can be careful and stand by faith. And if you do stand by faith, you will stand. But if you don't stand by faith, you're not going to stand at all. So there's this great news, but it comes with a warning for the king. And I think it's quite poetic. The whole time that Isaiah is giving this warning, there's his son standing there. And his son, his name is Remnant Will Return. Remnant Will Return basically says that there's going to be an exile, but they're going to come back, which is kind of scary. But uh, I just think it's funny. So God wants to boost Ahaz, the king Ahaz's faith. And so God says to him, uh, ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether it is in the deepest depths or the highest heights. And Isaiah, the king Isaiah, I'm sorry, king Ahaz, these names are weird, uh, said, I will not ask, I will not put the Lord to the test. Now you might think like, yeah, that, that sounds like a good response, not to put the Lord to the test. Uh, doesn't Jesus talk about not putting the Lord to the test? It says that somewhere in the Old Testament, sure. And so this almost sounds like a pious response. But Isaiah sees right through it because he knows the king. He knows what the king is like. And we know from other scriptures what the king is like. The king is not being pious here. He actually just doesn't believe in signs. He doesn't think that's worth anything. The, the king doesn't believe in Jehovah. Sure, he goes to the temple. Sure, he makes sacrifices. But he does it the same reason that politicians today call themselves Christians just because it makes him look good. There was no depth to his, his faith. There was no trust in, in Jehovah. That wasn't him at all. And so when he, when he says, oh, no, I'm not going to put the Lord to the test, he's trying to sound all pious. But, but actually, it ticks off Jeremiah. Jeremiah is choked. And uh, his, Jeremiah's response to him is, Hear now, you, you house of David. It's not enough to try the patience of People will you know, now try the patience of God. <laughs> uh, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and they will give birth to a son and call him Emmanuel. I bet you you've never heard that read in an angry sounding voice before, have you? 
But I think that's exactly how it was stated the first time it was stated. This is like a virgin's going to conceive and give birth to a son and they're going to call him Emmanuel. <laughs> and we're all like, what? And, and, but he doesn't stop there. He says, he'll be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to re- reject the wrong and choose the right. For the, before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and, and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. And you might be thinking like, I thought the first time I read this passage many years ago, I was like, is, is, this, is this Jesus? Is he like out there with John the Baptist eating curds and honey in the wilderness? Is that? But then that doesn't really make sense because, you know, I think Jesus knew wrong from right, right from birth. I mean, he was God. So, uh, and, and, and what's this about the two kings that they dread being laid waste. I mean, how does that fit with Jesus? This just doesn't seem like we're prophecy about Jesus at all. And you'd be right that it wasn't originally a prophecy about Jesus at all. It is a a prophecy about Jesus, but we're going to see why it's a prophecy about Jesus. But originally, this was a prophecy about a virgin giving birth. What has to happen before a virgin gives birth? Well, she has to get married. And so that's at least some time. And then after she gets married, there has to be, you know, uh, relations with a husband. And then there's another nine months. And then a baby is born. So this is at least a year away. And then it says before the baby, this child, this boy that's born, that's going to be called Emmanuel, uh, before he's old enough to know right from wrong. So that's what, two, three years? How, I don't know how old kids have to be to know right from wrong, but probably around two or three years old, something like that. Um, then, then these two kings in the northern, north of, of Judah are going to be destroyed. They're going to be wiped off the face of the earth. It's all going to come to naught. So all this fear that you have of them, it's all going to be gone. This is the sign. So, so Isaiah is saying, this, the Lord himself will give you a sign. And this is what it's going to be. And, and it's a pretty cool sign. What we find out is in the next chapter, in chapter 8, verse 3, we find out that Isaiah picks up a new wife. Okay, so we, uh, scholars assume that Isaiah's first wife died when she gave birth to um, a remnant will return. So after she gave birth to a remnant will return, uh, then she likely died. And so in verse 3 of of the next chapter, Isaiah is marrying and, and having relations with a prophetess. And then we find out that the, a son is born. Sure enough, a son is born. And before he knows how to say mother and father, the, the two kings that we're talking about are completely wiped out. So we know it's talking about the same child, and we know it's actually Isaiah's son. But the weird thing is, is that Isaiah, there's no record of Isaiah calling him Emmanuel, although it seems like his mother called him Emmanuel at least. But you know what what, uh, Isaiah was told by the Lord to call his son? Marshal Hashbash, (laughs) which which being interpreted means uh, to quit swift to the plunder. Very interesting name, Mahar Shala Lahashbash. Um, 
Can you imagine calling him for dinner? Hey, Mashar Hala Shashbash, come for dinner. <laughs> you know, Mashar Hala Hashbash, can you help your mom with the dishes? I can't imagine calling a kid this. But anyways, that's what his name, Swift to the Plunder. Because by the time he was three years old, all of northern Israel was to be plundered. And, uh, and then it says that he would eat curds and honey. This isn't a reference to Jesus. This is a reference to this young boy. Why is it reference eating curds and honey? Well, what happened is after the northern Israel was destroyed, then the Assyrians actually went into, into Judah, and they destroyed a lot of Judah as well, although they didn't take the capital. So uh, all of this destruction was happening, and what, was ha- what happened was all of the places, all of the fertile fields that used to be cultivated, they all were neglected. And they all became briar patches. And, and so cultivation wasn't happening anymore. Farming wasn't happening anymore. So the boy would eat curds and honey because all he's doing is subsistence farming. Basically, they'd have a cow, allow the cow to wander through the bramble bushes and milk the cow, and they'd get curds from that, and then they'd look around for honey. But no, nobody was actually doing cash crops anymore. It was all gone. It was because the whole place was destroyed. And so this is how this prophecy is being fulfilled. And then if if you go to chapter 8, some really cool things happened in in this passage. Or cool, (laughs) not so cool, some of them. Uh, So... um, the Lord speaks to Isaiah and he says to them, Because this people has rejected the gently flowing waters of Shiloh and rejoices over Rezin, the son of Ramallah. So in other words, Israel was talking about Rezin as somebody great and they rejected Christ or they rejected God. Therefore the Lord is bringing about to the, against them the mighty flood waters of the river. Uh, the king of Assyria with all his pomp, will overflow its channels, run over all its bank, sweep on into Judah, swirling over it, passing through it, and reaching up to the neck. Its outspread wings will cover the breadth of your land. O Emmanuel, raise a war cry, you nations. Be shattered. Listen, all you distant lands. Prepare for battle and be shattered. Prepare for battle and be shattered. Devise your strategies, but it will not... It will be thwarted. Purpose your plans, but it will not stand. For God is with us. For Emmanuel. Emmanuel is repeated twice here. I know uh, in the in a lot of Bibles, it doesn't show the word Emmanuel in both places, but in the Hebrew, it's in both places. Emmanuel, and and so the first time, it's almost like like it, it's almost like saying, "Oh my God!" It's like it's an exclamation. "Oh God, with us!" You know, because everything's being destroyed. And so he's, it's like a cry out to God, Oh, God, be with us. Oh, Emmanuel. And then the second time, it's like, Well, all this, all this warring is going to fail because God is with us. Emmanuel. And really, what he's depicting is the Syrian army coming and taking and destroying our Aram. The Syrian army coming and destroying all of Israel. And the Syrian army flooding into Judah and right up to the neck. But Jerusalem doesn't fall to the Assyrians. 
And the people are not taken away captive. They're, they're almost drowning. They're just barely holding their heads above water. At first, I couldn't figure out what this was talking about at first. But now I suddenly realized that God was promising that he would still be with the people. He was going to be God with us. And it's like another hole is cut in, in, the, uh, in the darkness. And God says, I'm going to be with you. And in, in verse 18... Uh, we find out, it's very interesting what it says in verse eight, chapter 8, verse 18. It says, uh, Here am I, and the children of the Lord has given me. We are signs and symbols in Israel from the Lord Almighty who dwells on Mount Zion. So uh, Isaiah is saying, my kids are symbols in, in this whole process. And we see these glimpses of God peeking through the darkness. But what we realize is that this, there's this great light behind it all these verses when we get to the the passage that joshua read earlier about uh you know this when when the angel comes to mary and announces that she's going to be pregnant even though she's a virgin and then matthew says this was to fulfill what was written of by the prophet isaiah the virgin will conceive and bear a son and they will call him emmanuel and so jesus is the final fulfillment of this biblical type This was the first fulfillment, this young boy being born and and the kings of Assyria being wiped out. And so this was the first fulfillment. But there was this other deeper meaning that was also there in the text lingering, showing that God was going to do this amazing thing. It wouldn't just be a a, a virgin who... uh, who conceived uh, through the normal process, this was actually going to be a virgin who remained a virgin through the conception process, which is like unheard of and blows our minds, right? But that's what the pro- was prophesied in the book of Matthew by the angel. And it said this is directly re- related, the angel is telling it, it's directly related to this prophecy. And so there's this thing going on in the background as Isaiah is looking at, the, the, the nation before him, the darkness around him, and he sees these bits of light, and then he realizes that there's something going on even further back. There's something going on, and it's almost like all of the, the events that are happening in the prophet's life, it's almost like he's trying to see what is beyond them, and he realizes there is something incredible beyond them. And, and our chapter today, chapter 8, ends with these words. And then they will look towards the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom. And they will be thrust into utter darkness. And there's a sense that Isaiah is like, whoa, it's so gloomy, it's so dark. But next week, the very first words of chapter 9 are, but, but. All of this darkness is gloom with these tiny little pinpricks of light coming through. But, God says, Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. And well, we're going to carry on next week because I've already gone way over time. And we'll find out what Christmas looks like according to Isaiah next week as we join, jump into chapter 9. But what I want to point out is that on the third week, we're going to talk about um, the suffering servant that Isaiah describes uh, later on 
in the book of Isaiah. And, and it's an unbelievable picture that Isaiah paints 700 years before Jesus Christ comes. He's painting this marvelous picture of a servant who's suffering. And he's suffering for the sake of the people. And the, the judgment that is due the people falls on the suffering servant. Now, it's really unclear at that point who this suffering service is. And if you talk to Jewish people, they, they say that, no, the suffering servant is Israel. And Christians also understand it to be Israel. But there's this strangeness to it. It's clearly a person. And it's clearly this person is suffering for the people. And the people's sins are forgiven. And that's what we celebrate today, isn't it, at communion. We celebrate the fact that Jesus Christ died for our sins, that by his stripes we are healed, by the the punishment that was upon him brought us peace. This is all in Isaiah. Isaiah paints this incredibly, incredible picture of the cross, of Jesus dying on the cross for the sins of the people. It's just black and white. It's so clear. Uh, and in fact, it's so clear that in Jewish Bibles today, they don't translate it. They leave it in Hebrew so that people can't read it, basically. It's, it's, it's quite astounding. Um, and so, because they, they don't want to see how clear that it depicts the Savior. So today... I'm just going to put my mask on for this part. This is where we're handling food here. So today as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, I want you to think about the gloom that is descending around us, the immorality, the, the evil that is here in this world. There, there's a lot. And yes, there's good in this world too. And God calls us to stand firm, to not be afraid, to hold up the things of God. One verse I want to read from chapter 8. I forgot about it. I think it's a really cool verse. Uh, I'm just going to read it and let you decide what to do with it. But it, uh, it really challenged me during this time. Um, the Lord spoke to me with his strong hand upon me, warning me not to follow the way of this people. He said, do not call conspiracy what they call conspiracy. <laughs> oh, isn't that, isn't that a word for today? <laughs> uh, do not fear what they fear and do not dread it. I, I believe that, you know, during COVID and during the controversy about the vaccines and all that stuff, you know, God is saying, don't get into all that. Focus on what I've called you to do. Focus on the things of God. The, the message of the gospel needs to go out. People in the, in, you know, in the world need to hear the good news. We need to stand firm as Christians on the truth that we have and share that with people. And so this truth that Jesus Christ died for our sins... That's something that Jesus said, when you, when you partake of this meal, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So there's a sense that we're partaking of a new covenant, a covenant that says if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, your sins will not be 
held against you. Rather, you will be imputed or gain the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The righteousness of Christ will become your own. This is a great covenant. I love this covenant. It's just like, oh, okay, so I get to go scot-free? Uh, yeah, if I put my faith in Christ. Christ. 